This week's episode of Millions of Screens is brought to you by I May Destroy You, the fearless HBO original series written by and starring Michaela Cole. And winner, just last night, of Breakthrough Short Form Series at the Gotham Awards. The Atlantic hailed the series as a brilliant, explosive consideration of modern sexual mores, and the New York Times calls Michaela's performance riveting and impossible to turn away from. The series explores questions of sexual consent in contemporary life and how, in the landscape of dating, we can make the distinction between liberation and exploitation. I May Destroy You, now streaming on HBO Max. Also, I May Destroy You, the number one film on Letterboxd. It is the millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creator producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today, we're going to be talking about football on Nickelodeon. What? The Nielsen 2020 streaming rankings. And why not throw in a little politics just for good measure? Let's just skip right ahead to the clicker. (laughs) Ben, you brought this to my attention. I was completely unaware of this. But over the weekend, in a sign of corporate synergy... The Saints-Bears playoff game was simulcast on Nickelodeon. And for those who haven't seen some of these images, essentially, they just added a bunch of cartoon-esque graphics to the game itself and highlights. There are puffs of smoke. There's slime. Ben, what does this mean for the future of of sports and corporations? And are we going to see football on Peacock? We probably probably would exist. Uh, where's the next place that that football ends up? I mean, you name it, it's going to be on there. It seems like I I I will preface this by saying that uh, as a Bears just, fan, as a as a uh, reluctant, uh, eyes wide open, uh, self hating Chicago Bears fan, um, I will say that that. I think the Nickelodeon broadcast was fantastic. Everything I've read about it, all the reactions to it, the few video clips I've been able to watch uh, look like a much more enjoyable experience than the actual broadcast that I had to endure uh, on CBS. And as someone who has muted most sports announcers, most games uh, that I've watched, which are quite a few uh, for the last at least five years, I fully support any sort of change being made to uh, live sports broadcasting. Like they, they are so often atrocious uh, that, you know, giving people options is, is uh, I mean, honestly, just the least they can do. And what we're seeing now, especially in, you know, possibly most egregiously or depending on how you look at it, beautifully highlighted by the Nickelodeon broadcast is you know, an extension of corporate synergy where Viacom uh, is looking at all of its brands, uh, Viacom CBS, I should say, now that the merger is complete, uh, they're looking at all their brands. They're trying to figure out what is the most successful way for those brands to exist. They're trying to uh, spread the wealth, you know, as much as they possibly can. And NFL games, live sports in particular, but NFL games most of all, are, they make up like half, if not more, of the most watched programs every single year. And even if the ratings decline by, you know, 2%, 5%, they're still like head above heels uh, in terms of, of live viewers. 
then they'll they'll make up viewership on their other platforms with people who catch up on on VOD. Uh, but the ad dollars are are most precious for people who are watching live. So the NFL games are extremely important. And this Nickelodeon broadcast of a Bears game that is literally available for free on CBS if you have a digital antenna, uh, or you know obviously if you have satellite cable packages, this still got two point zero six one million viewers which is a 245% increase over last year's Nickelodeon ratings in, in a comparable window, as they're described in the CBS released. And it's the most watched program on the channel in nearly four years, like 2 million viewers. And that's not a huge percentage of, of the actual viewership for the game. So like to, to see that kind of mark uh, a success for Nickelodeon, I can only assume we'll continue to see more of the stuff in the future and what's exciting in those in that regard is stuff like nickelodeon how fun they can have how much fun they can have with it with the slime zone and the end zone with the little graphics that they add with young sheldon explaining to the audience different uh different uh penalty calls um but to me i also i've also noticed that like when the college football championship aired on monday if you logged onto the ESPN app to watch it, you could also watch the game with the home team announcers. So like the radio broadcast from Ohio State, the radio broadcast from Alabama. If you didn't want to listen to the people who are doing the national broadcast, which can't blame you, uh, you can have your hometown team and your side. Uh, all, the, all the Buckeye fans will be commiserated along with uh, the announcers at the same time. So um, they're coming up with kind of new innovative ways to access things and on the one hand it's it seems good and healthy and wonderful because we get these different kind of presentations and uh the traditional way that it's done has been shaken up which i really like on the downside you might get less original programming or less creative decision making on specific networks that instead are just following the ratings and being like well this may have nothing to do with football we may already have a channel in our portfolio or six broadcasting this game but we'll broadcast it too because we'll just get higher ratings that way, um, which also creates a, a pretty strong dependency on the NFL, which has its own problems. So that's the end of my spiel for now. Sorry about that. Sports. No, but I mean, this isn't something. This isn't necessarily something new. I mean, I think that uh, the Turner family of of networks, we've been seeing that more and more with the. Um, March Madness, right? Like, yeah, it was all Turner, and now it's all owned by Warner Media. So perhaps right. March Madness could extend to in the future HBO Max or uh, you know other Warner-owned viewing platforms. Right. I suppose the difference here is that the Bears game was simulcast on Nickelodeon. Right. So like the March Madness right. games are typically different games on each network, while all right. of March Madness is there, and this was the same game on many networks <laughs> at the same time. Just with different tweaks, like little poofs of air coming up behind That's speed very, players. Uh, maybe we should just go back to having three networks. Like maybe, maybe, maybe we we only have enough good programming for three networks, and we should just dial it all the way back. Or we can keep our four hundred and fifty networks and and just same throw the, uh, show the same three shows uh, at any given time. I'm just excited for the first time someone is concussed during a game and they show the little birds going around the person's head. Like it's like cracked and there's just like little birds going around the skull. Um, yeah, that's or, a really good one. Or they're carried off the field. So they like, 
uh, when they're showing the replays, they insert like Wiley e. Coyote, like painting the tunnel and the wall, and it'll just make all of that uh, long-term brain injuries uh, hilarious. And yeah. uh, find and a way to market lighting yeah. lighter than mood. The NFL needs to find a way to market CTE to kids so that kids are okay with it from the jump. I mean, in a very realistic way, this is a method for the NFL to engage with younger viewers, make oh. the game accessible to them, <laughs> and make them more likely to continue to breed talent for, to play in the league. So, like, it's uh, absolutely that is a problem. <laughs> and as somebody who's already conflicted about watching the NFL, especially during a pandemic, uh, the guilt is is strong inside of me. Um, but it's good. That's what we're going stronger. for. But now we need to brainstorm other Viacom properties that we could uh, use for this. Can we do like pop up football? And it's like every time a little thing pops up, watch the all shit over out the of that. Yeah. I mean, if there were no announcers and just pop up videos on VH1, that would absolutely work. The Comedy Central thing seems easy. Just bring in two comedians for each team, like from each hometown team, as like fans that also provide commentary. Uh, MTV, I don't fucking know. Just jams, a baby. Concert in the background. <laughs> just jock, give it a just jock jams constantly. <laughs> you just have a DJ score the game. Do you remember like uh, like when they used to do rock rock and jock, and they do like their their there just be a DJ the whole time providing the soundtrack, and like that's all you need, just a DJ providing the soundtrack for the whole game. Wow. Maybe just every Power? game would have like a very like a halftime show equivalent of the Super Bowl where like produced by MTV and that was like their main tie in. So like, they're just again, continuing to try to make it more of an event that you must watch uh, and attract a different fan base. I just love the idea of a DJ throwing on like some Leonard Cohen after Ben Roethlisberger throws his fourth interception <laughs> on Sunday night. Uh, watching big Ben cry on oh. would have been the best. I've never felt, I, n- I never realized why I needed a 65 inch TV. Until <laughs> Big Ben was crying. Until those tears started streaming and you're like, oh, I can see them so clearly and so brightly. Like they're just, they're like I mean, coming out of the TV. Each tear was like the size of an apple on my television. They were huge. <laughs> they were huge. They were huge. <laughs> what are we talking about? We're talking about Nielsen streaming ratings. How That's are, right. <laughs> how are we not TV executives? Guys, Nielsen released uh, their ranking of the top content on streaming platforms uh and i think some of the shows uh there there are no surprises here the office was the most viewed uh series when you include both archival and and new uh a series with an average of or no a total of 57.13 billion minutes that's a lot that's 45 percent more than the second rank show which is gray's anatomy We've had some time to look at these at these results. What what surprised you in these numbers? There's obviously things like Tiger King, that that are sort of like huge cultural zeitgeisty things. Um, but but looking at these numbers, what surprised both of you, Libby? I know you had a thought about Tiger King. I you know it. We hear a lot about. Um, obviously, we heard all about a lot about Tiger King all year, but it was some some solace to me that like roughly people only spent a little more time watching tiger king uh collectively than they did watching new girl um which is an an old high quality sitcom um that only brings joy to people as opposed to animal exploitation and murder and shut up ben 
I don't know, New Girl can be pretty frustrating. That whole Jess and Nick thing, that was rough. I mean, it, 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 there were some rough seasons in there. I'm not going to lie. I was also quick to point out that New Girl just barely edged out the Blacklist and Vampire Diaries. I will tell the people what I told you, Leo, and that is that my parents need to watch something, and if you take the blacklist from them, what are they going to go to? The Vampire Diaries? No. <laughs> tell the people. Well, if you can't watch Blue Bloods, Leo, I don't see how I can convince my parents If I can't to. be bothered to review Blue Bloods Season 11, how are people going to know if they should watch it or not? Um, I, I will also add that I'm pretty sure I account for at least a billion of those great British Bake Off minutes. Um, yes, yeah, so, so you're you're one thir- one, thir- one thirteenth of all the great British Bake Off baking yes. show uh, of minutes mm-hmm. is is Libby mm-hmm. Hill. Yes, uh, I'll just run through the top ten. Uh, these these were of original series. Uh, Ozark number one with thirty billion minutes watched. Then Lucifer, The Crown, Tiger King. The Mandalorian, which is the only spot in the top 10 not occupied by a Netflix series. The Umbrella Academy, The Great British Baking Show, Boss Baby, Back in Business, Longmire, and you. Me? You. (laughs) Me. It's like when Time had their person of the year and it was a mirror. And (laughs) you were the person of the year. Yeah. I will say that a lot of these shows in the top 10 uh, either came out early in the year or late last year and then cap like you, which we're trying to talk about, the Penn Badgley show that used to be on Lifetime, that I believe debuted almost on the last day of 2019. So then, you know, it makes sense that it would have all this time in 2020 to accrue enough minutes to beat out certain things that might have come out later. Um, but The Crown clocking in in third place with 16 billion minutes despite coming out in November? December? Well, Early it probably December? also That's includes impressive. people people no, going no. back and watching older seasons, correct? Well, I would I would I would agree with that, but I would still think that the that the bulk of the watching or the viewing would have come around the same time. Like they would have been revisiting it to get ready for the new one, uh, or just you know absorbing the new one. Um, but right. that being so, said, so but yeah, to that extent, it, you know, you see Ozark up there so high, but but you are looking at Ozark coming out at the end of March. Uh, as compared to like something like The Crown, which came out in 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 November, um, and there's a marked difference between how many people watched. And I'm wondering if that is a straight popularity game or if that is you know timing. Right. Yeah. I, I think I think timing would have to play into it. Um, but to pivot a little bit toward uh, the movie portion of this list, which I find to be extremely telling. Um, obviously the, the minutes accrued from a TV series, uh, assuming people like the show enough to watch all of it. Uh, and if it's this popular, then you would think that they would, uh, you know, that's going to amass much more minutes with less viewers. So the fact that, you know, uh, frozen two is the number one movie on here with 14 billion minutes. And that would clock it in at fifth, fifth on the original series list and, barely get it onto the top 10 acquired series list. And these are all technically acquired movies on here that made the top 10. Um, You know, that goes to show that, you know, you can rack up a lot of minutes in a short amount of time, even as a TV show. Um, But the thing that this says to me the most is (laughs) 
there are there are seven Disney Plus movies on this top ten list, as opposed to the other two lists where it's acquired series and original series. Nine of the ten original series are from Netflix. Ten of the ten acquired series are from Netflix, which emphasizes the both the dominance that Netflix has on the streaming world in particular, as well as the inroads that Disney Plus is making. Um, but the movies, you know, speaks to kind of the importance of acquired content. Frozen 2 is number one. Moana is number two. Uh, the next Disney Plus movie is Onward, which was their Pixar movie that came out early in the year. Like it was, it premiered in theaters before the pandemic and did okay, but then quickly came out on Disney Plus, which you know helps explain some of the boost. Then they've got Hamilton, uh, as well as oh no, that's it. Then they've got uh, the live action version of Aladdin, Toy Story Four, and Zootopia. Um, but Hamilton had six billion minutes watched according again according to Nielsen. Whereas Frozen 2 had 14.9. Like, it's it's just such a massive difference in terms of, of, you know, what people are watching and how important some of these library titles are. Um, but it also goes to show that today, Netflix announced that they were having uh, a venture of having one movie come out every week, one new movie come out on Netflix every week. And that, to me, you know, shows one that they recognize that they don't have a huge library, so they need to start pumping out movies to help fill out their own library to help compete with these older libraries. Two, Netflix isn't as worried about the the kind of long-term benefits of some of these things. Like, obviously, you want to have something um, that people will revisit every year, like we saw the Christmas Chronicles and the Christmas Chronicles 2, both circulating in the top ten over Christmas. Um, but they need to be on, you know, the cutting edge. They need to have the new cool show that keeps people subscribing as opposed to Disney plus, which can lean on something like Moana and be like, listen, I know your kids want to watch Moana 16 times a day. You can't unsubscribe. Uh, Netflix understands that it needs to build out that library while still staying, you know, <laughs> current, uh, and movies are a pretty good way to do that because you can produce, they're shorter, you can produce them quickly, they can create a lot of buzz, and they might disappear quicker, um, but they're still, you know, an extremely valuable piece of entertainment. So I, I expect to see, as Libby pointed out when we first discussed this, I expect to see this list pivot a bit in the coming years as Disney+, Plus, Netflix, and especially now HBO Max, really put a lot of focus on movies in the streaming world. Uh, I just want to note that 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 frozen two the runtime is an hour and 43 minutes if you were to add up those billions of minutes uh it was watched to completion 144 million times seems low. that seems low but that's the, that's how that's how my bad math might have worked out no uh uh so i i was looking at that and one one thing that i i just i i can't get over is um the inclusion of spencer confidential on that list uh, Hell yeah! Also, like a January release, hell? by the way. Yeah, but the other thing is, all of those animated movies. The one thing that they have in common is they have all they. There are none older than 2016. Um, so I don't know if that's a, if that's a reflection at all at how old the children <laughs> who are watching things are. Um, but yeah, before that, it's just it's there's nothing on there, and so it's it's these recent releases that. Um, as though children are goldfish and they only remember the most recent movie they watch. A question I have from my dumb rude brain, and maybe one of you can answer this, is when we see Probably something not. like like Bridgerton, you know, they announced that like it had 63 million viewers. It rocketed to the number five spot all time on Netflix's charts. 
Obviously, that was a December release, but why aren't shows like Bridgerton or Queen's Gambit showing up here? Are Netflix's numbers wrong? Well, again, remember Netflix metrics are a little different when they're announcing how many people have watched something. They're they're counting, I don't remember at this point. Two minutes. Two minutes? Two, two minutes. Yeah, it's two minutes of, of viewing. So that's saying that 64, 65 million people watched two minutes of Bridgerton. And if 64 million people watched two minutes, that's only... A hundred and twenty-eight minutes. <laughs> They're not even getting minutes. on those. They're not even in the twenties. Yeah. You gotta get 20s. to the billions. Gonna, yeah, it's not even gonna make the movie list. So, like, that's that's definitely part of it. I, I also agree that I think the timing is is definitely a part of it because I do believe that Bridgerton, if we trust the Netflix self-release top ten lists, it's been sustaining in the top ten list long enough that it seems like people are both still discovering and finishing that show. So, I would expect to see that again if this was reframed outside of the calendar year and more around you know uh, a show release schedule or or just buy an individual show over a certain or over their um first three months or six months or something you know that might have a better chance of getting in queen's gambit is an interesting question though because it came out early enough compared to something like the crown i don't know i i like information no matter how flawed and limited it is and it is worth mentioning that to a certain extent, these are limited numbers. You'll see the streamers complain that this does not accurately reflect all of the different ways that people can consume their content, including on uh, phones or like laptops. They are, uh, Nielsen is focusing primarily on TV sets. Also, it is exclusively focused on US audiences and not those in other countries. It also goes to show that you know, this isn't this isn't the full story by any means. Like, let alone, you know, the numbers aren't necessarily, you know, 100% reflective, if even 50% reflective of what is being watched the most on a streaming service. But it also doesn't illustrate the streaming service's priorities. Lucifer only made it, I believe, two seasons on Netflix mm-hmm. after yeah. it moved over from Fox. Um, it's definitely over now. And according to Nielsen's original series, uh, Lucifer is the second most popular show on streaming over the past year so you would think instinctively that netflix would prioritize that and renew it for as long as humanly possible but that ignores what is truly valuable to a a network or to a streamer like netflix at this point which is growing its subscriber base and lucifer as well as a lot of these acquired series uh are was a broadcast series it was not necessarily uh one of those kind of must see must have titles that was driving people to subscribe so much as it was like a bonus option for them to just have while they were waiting for something better to come along. And I know that Luc- don't stick the Lucifer fan base on me. I know they are rabid and huge and intense, and there's a good number of you, and you all want it to continue. That being said, if if it really was the only thing that mattered was how many minutes people watched of a show, then you better believe that Lucifer would have continued, and it's not. So that tells you what is you know kind of focused on at Netflix. I will say, Lucifer had three seasons on Fox before it was canceled. Netflix picked it up. It has had two seasons since, and it's getting a sixth and final season. Oh, it is getting a sixth and it final. Is. Oh, the sixth that was and announced final in July. Oh, mm-hmm. my. my mistake. Yeah. Well, you're wrong, and it's very important that we include those moments in the podcast. Always. Guys, last week we recorded the podcast on Tuesday before the events uh, that occurred in D.C. on Wednesday, the uh, attempted coup uh by the MAGA 
brigade, the president's being banned from Twitter, all this stuff happened after we recorded. But one thing that I did want to sort of talk about, which ties into all that, which was last week, for the first time since, since September of 2000, both CNN and MSNBC outperformed Fox News in terms of numbers. And CNN had its most highly viewed day on Wednesday, January 6th. I just wanted to sort of open up the floor. It was like, is this, will this end? This idea of like, we're all glued to our television sets 24 hours to make sure the idiot in charge doesn't do something even more idiotic. Will these numbers dwindle in a quote unquote boring Biden presidency? And not that we are political reporters generally, but what does this say for Fox News moving forward? It seems like they're losing their base either to hopefully some people who are seeing the errors of their ways and moving to the quote unquote centrist news outlets or to the people who are doubling down and moving over to OANN and Newsmax. Uh, a lot to parse there. My, my guess, my question to you is, how are you guys doing after Wednesday? Because I've been struggling to get work done. <laughs> you know, I opted, and and this is because uh, I know I'm I'm when we talked about this beforehand, I I was sort of a person who's like, is what is the future of twenty four hour news cycles? And part of that it comes from the fact that I didn't turn my TV on once last week, um, regarding the the uh, events at the Capitol. Um, because I know what that is. I, I know what twenty four hour the 24-hour news cycle is. It's just going to be the same six people there saying things, uh, saying that we don't know much, uh, live footage of police cars in the distance. Like, I, I know what a disaster, what disaster coverage looks like on um, 24-hour news networks, which is not to say that something like Twitter or online news sources are better, but um, I feel like I'm able to pick and choose the voices that I am hearing from um, in a more specific way, uh, which which leads me to something that I know that Leo has more thoughts on, um, which is I think so much of the 24-hour news channels are dependent on the talent that they have and the guests that they bring in. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I think Fox News uh, ratings faltered last week is because no one has aligned themselves as closely with the president as they have. Even as in the last 18 months, um, you have seen more upstart outlets like OANN. Well, they've been hedging, they'll be, they've been hedging the past, essentially the past two to three years where like you have the Chris Wallace's of the world try to be respectable newsmen. Right. And then you have Hannity and Carlson going nuts in their on their opinion shows. Yeah, they're the true believers. Um who will I am I assume eventually end up bringing big money to OANN and or having their own, you know, radio empires like Rush Limbaugh. Um it, you know, so Fox News bet big on Trump supporters and on Trump and they invested heavily for the last 5 years. And if the current president goes down in a, in a ball of flames, then it will take Fox News with them because at, one, at, at a certain point, they can't be trusted by the left or center because of the alliances that they've shown over the last five years. And now they can't be trusted by the far right because of their alliances in the last 10 days. Um, it's a lose-lose situation and it couldn't happen to nicer people, but... Um, 
but also to that extent, like they are, they're not the only guilty parties here. There's a reason I didn't turn on MSNBC. And it's something we spoke in the podcast about previously. And that's that, you know, the most liberal, because I am one of those West Coast elites, um, you know, born in South Dakota, West Coast elites, uh, I don't turn on MSNBC because they bring in a lot of uh, centrists who toe the de- toe the DNC party line, but uh, say stupid things. Or they have they have Lincoln Party Republicans coming in. They have Claire McCaskill coming in, and uh, they're hearing from all these people. And I don't want to hear from all those people because you know what? I've been hearing from all those people for the last twenty five years, and uh, it's not good enough for me anymore. So I go to Twitter where I can hand choose who I want to hear from. And I can hear from those MSNBC personalities who aren't allowed to really espouse the the truly liberal views they have on the network. They have to take to, you know, the internet to do that. Um, I don't know if our generation will return to 24 hour news because I don't know if our generation can find our mouthpieces there. Um, what was once about information. And I remember, uh, I am old enough to remember the rise of 24-hour news uh, with the first Gulf War, with OJ, with with all of that. Um, but I, I, I also feel like I'm old enough to see us growing out of it to a certain extent. Um, I've talked for a very long time and I need someone else to talk now. And I have no idea how to transition to that. Well, I would, I would just, I would briefly say that I, I, uh, 100% believe what you're saying, want to believe what you're saying, and yet still fear that, uh, Fox News will be absolutely fine because they've been, uh, working for years at crafting whatever narrative fits their agenda and convincing viewers to go along with that narrative. So I, I, uh, am living in terror of their expertise of manipulation and believe that they'll probably be able to uh, sustain the people who eventually see that the Republican party that they've supported for so long still needs a mouthpiece in the news. And uh, when there's uh, you know real issues being dealt with in DC politics, they need to turn to Fox news to see how their party is addressing and interpreting them while still a wide swath of the diehard loyalist Trump supporters go off to those kind of extremist fringes um, but that being said, everything you're saying about not watching the news uh, as as a member of this generation uh, applies to me because I, I've been a cord cutter for eight years now. Um, I think the few times I've watched cable news in the last eight years is when is when there's been an election going on and I'm I'm trying to get results or hear results or hear some sort of immediate reaction and interpretation of what's going on. And even then, I'm still usually clinging to Twitter uh, and the, the political junkies that I follow on Twitter more so than I am actually trusting or waiting for the news to on TV to give me any sort of information. And when the Capitol siege happened, I was doing the same thing. I followed a lot of it through Twitter. Um, I tried to fo- I tried to log into some CNN coverage online and watch some stuff that was live and then read a lot of people who had reactions to what they were watching to kind of interpret how the news handled it. And I do think that what happened on Wednesday uh, showed that we've had some growth in terms of how 
news anchors respond to Trump and respond to kind of um, his 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 general danger, his his hate mongering and fear mongering tactics, and um, that was encouraging to hear and to see because you know some of them didn't show his video, which Biden had actually requested them to show, and. Some of them, when they were showing it, were editing it live. Some of them were immediately following up with saying, "Listen, I know we just showed that, but this isn't what this isn't true, and this isn't true, and this isn't true, and this isn't true." Um, and seeing that reaction and seeing that kind of discernment goes above and beyond what we were used to seeing when the Trump presidency began. And that every time he say anything, they flocked to it because they wanted the ratings and they wanted the coverage, and it's really hard to say what the next year, four years will be like in terms of news ratings and how they'll adapt if the ratings do drop because it is as you like as it's being widely described as more boring politics as usual. Um, but I, I they'll adapt. They will continue to adapt. They will continue to find ways into these stories and these topics that are, salacious and uh, demanding of your attention in a way that may or may not justify that attention. And the one thing that I'll say about the ratings on Wednesday, everyone who heard what was happening knew they had to see what was happening for themselves. And that is a rare instance when it comes to real world reporting. Like there's, there's always going to be tragedies and there's always going to be uh, breaking news, but something like that is something you have to see with your own eyes, and people tuned into the news to do that because that's what they typically do. I don't think that's going to keep happening, um, and I, I again, I'm not going to pretend to know how how they'll pivot to make sure that they can keep their quarterlies steady. So I'll find a way. I'll be on I'll be on Twitter, an equally toxic place. But toxic yeah. in a different way. Yeah, it's it's sort of telling. It's you mentioned uh, the rise of twenty four hour news, and I always associate it with another. Like Chuck Schumer said that January sixth, twenty twenty one, will now be added to the the list of dates that will live in infamy in American history. And what I always equate the rise of the twenty four hour news cycle to is nine eleven, and the idea that as Ben just mentioned. It was it was an event that everyone had to you had to witness it in real time as much as you could. And then you were sort of lost in your confusion and thoughts and you sort of needed some constant presence to be like, what is are Will there be answers? And I think that's that sort of gave rise to this 24 hour news cycle. And then they didn't know what to fill it with for so long that it sort of became this this awful albatross of like. Something happens. Let's go there and give you nothing for eight hours. And then Trump came along and he sort of filled it in an accurate way because he is such a fucking disaster uh, that they were able to sort of cover it in the same way that they covered 9-11 for four years. Now, Ben, you mentioned the way that what sort of it's heartful to know that the news reporters could cover trump trump as could cover trump as trump. Trump. trump is the 9-11 of people is just like 
Yeah, that seems out. Yeah. And we're getting to 300,000 infections, 3,000 deaths a day. So Yeah, it all checks out. But it, it, it was somewhat heartful to see that reporters could change their tone on Trump. But maybe from my, you know, liberal bubble ears, I thought it was all too little too late. I thought, oh, sure. I thought on election night when or when Brian Williams cut away from Trump saying he won the next day after the election, it all had an air of and I met, I referenced this before, but like it all felt like the moment in Home Alone when Kevin comes out of the house and says, you hear that? I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. And like, that's what all the press was doing once Trump, quote unquote, lost the election. Like when it was in it was in hand in Georgia and it's like he's going to lose. We don't have to pay attention to him anymore. But they gave him so much oxygen for four years. Uh, and you kind of wish any of the networks had done that at any point over the course of the previous four four years. And I think Libby was mentioning this and we've talked about this at length off pod. But for being the quote unquote liberal answer to Fox News, there is nothing more infuriating than watching the cavalcade of Lincoln Project folks come on to MSNBC, Michael Steele, Steve Schmidt. It's like you one of you ran the RNC. One of you ran the McCain Palin campaign. Why are you the constant voices? And I understand how those programs work where you just have like contributors who are going to be on every hour on the hour. But why are you giving them so much time? Truly insane. There's no way that Fox News is giving that much time to our most left people. Like that's not happening. They, theirs is an echo chamber. And meanwhile, our because we're quote unquote supposed to be better, we're offering some kind of both sidesism. If I want to watch liberal news, I want to watch liberal news. That's because every time they have Pete Buttigieg on, he roasts them and they don't know what to do. <laughs> so they, they can't have even the most kind of centrist liberals on over there. But I, And I think that's the thing. Claire McCaskill has so much time to show up on MSNBC and comment <laughs> because she lost her election. Like, she's not a person I need to hear from. Um, also, she's not very trans rights and Claire can go fuck herself. Um, but I, 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 well, Libby, Libby, you do know that's identity politics that doomed the, doomed the Democrats yeah, that's how we to lost, not uh, getting, both. not getting the blue wave, not getting the blue wave they wanted. And now we're a politics podcast. Yeah. I hope you guys are ready. <laughs> Film and politics. Well, but I, I mean, this is the, I think this is the biggest question facing news as a, as an outlet, like TV news, news in general, as, as the, as time ticks away, as, as, you know, days turn to months turn to years turn to decades which is will we ever be able to trust it and rely on it again are are, is there a a core group of people who will go back to it and if so why and how like are we permanently moving on from this sort of thing because it's just been so tarnished and trashed that we're we're just not gonna we're not gonna pay attention to it anymore um and given the way that people can consume news these days and given the way that they all want to have their own perspectives acknowledged, if not catered to or, or you know, exclusively voiced. Um, where are they going to find that? And 
again, I don't have a great answer for it, but um, watching watching the, the the way that it's being handled today, it doesn't give you a lot of hope that there's going to be some sort of uh, unifying solution anytime soon. Nor there's no going there. back. There's no. We're not going to have a Walter another Walter Cronkite. And if you look back to the age of Walter Cronkite, like those were all just old white men. It, you know, they were. It felt like they were universal. But if you look at it, it they weren't universal. Um, and then I say that as someone who loves Walter Cronkite. Like, but uh, honestly, Ben, if it helps, this ties directly into the NFL on Nickelodeon. Everyone wants the same thing. They just want it catered specifically to them they want it to have the puck highlighted the, the hockey puck highlighted or they want little uh animated um slime uh every time someone scores a touchdown or they want dancing robots on fox which i've never understood they want what they want and they want it how they want it and because we live in this age where there is so much customization available we're never going back to um that kind of singular that singular trusted source of news because i think that illusion is broken there is no such thing as impartiality there's no such thing as it's hard to believe there's a such thing as truth anymore because it's so subjective to a person's eyes like that's why i don't know what to think about 24-hour news networks. I think that weirdo stations or, or weirdo outlets like OANN will become more... I mean, we saw this with uh, political websites, too. Like, there's... It used to be, like, Drudge. And now there's Breitbart. And there's... You know, there's all of these... You want to... There are so many more echo chambers now, which is nice because people can find representation for the views that they have, but it's also awful because awful people can find representation for the views that they have. But there's no, we're never going back to the singular uh, source because it's just so easy to manipulate that singular source. And um, well, that's politics. <laughs> I'm sure that can be cut into something vaguely relevant for the podcast. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video of York Talking About TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brightson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Anne Donahue. Our favorite Nickelodeon shows are Clarissa Explains It All, Rocco's Modern Life, and The Angry Beavers. Millions of Screens endorses Leo, insert your favorite Nickelodeon show here. <laughs> I think that went well. That's the kind of you-can't-do-that-on-television humor this podcast so sorely needs. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at a million screens, at Midwest Spitfire, at Ben T. Travers, and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo reminding you that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. Shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>